great reminder for us this morning. Have you ever been to um, a program or event of some sort where you're just packed in with thousands of people, you know, maybe standing shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, maybe um, like um, a concert of some sort or maybe um, uh, some other sort of program, uh, maybe a sporting event that you've been to, maybe it was a political rally or cultural event, maybe um, even a, um, like an evangelistic crusade. Uh, Billy Graham crusade or something like that where everyone is there together the same excitement the same anticipation kind of building within everyone and there's this sense of um, of unity of, of you know of us all being united uh, you know as in, uh, just anticipates and grows as time ticks closer for it to begin and there's this common purpose in everybody's hearts so that whenever you express your personal your response, it joins with everybody else so that the response is just bigger than any single person. When I was in high school, my dad took my brother and me uh, to Atlanta and we watched the Braves play um, and actually clinched the World Series. Uh, and I think that was 1995, an unbelievable experience as the home run is hit. David Justice, we were just with this crowd of people just overwhelmed. This is the most exciting thing. Everybody joining together. And it, it was, it was, you felt unity. Even though you didn't know the person next to you, you felt like this is my best friends in the world. You know? Whenever I was the college minister here, I took a group of college students to Sherman, Texas for the Passion Conference event one day. And we camped out there on this ranch, this farm. And as the one day approached where we would gather on this one field, I remember sitting there, and there was just this sense of anticipation in every, person, every person's heart that was sitting there on that field for this time of worship, this time of renewal to hear the Word of God preached. It was like nothing else I had ever experienced. The author of the NIV application commentary says that we should experience that same feeling every time we come to read and study the book of the Psalms. Gerald Wilson writes, whenever we crack open this biblical book and read from its collection of 150 songs, whenever we allow ourselves to become truly immersed in the world they bring to life, we are taking our stand within a huge crowd of the faithful who have sung the psalms throughout the generations of the people of God. This summer, I want to spend several weeks where we're just going to study through the book of the Psalms. There's not going to be a theme. We're not going to work from beginning to end. But just the only theme will be that we're going to look at the Psalms this summer. And I, I, for some reason, I'm really drawn to the Psalms during the summer. I like to read it for personal reflection, for a, a re refreshment. Uh, and I hope that's kind of exactly what we'll experience as a group, as a church together. The Psalms were written over a period of about 800 years. Moses penned uh, Psalm 90 in the um, second millennium B.C. Uh, David wrote almost half of them. I think about 73 of the Psalms were written by David. And so he was writing about the year 1000 B.C. Other authors included Solomon, um, Ethan, the sons of Korah. There are many authors of the Psalms. And since their inception, the Psalms have regularly been on the lips of readers spanning 3,000 years. Wilson writes, whenever you read the Psalms, when you sing them or pray them, you are praying, singing, and reading alongside a huge crowd of faithful witnesses throughout the ages. The words you speak have been spoken thousands, even millions of times before, in Hebrew, 
Greek, Latin, English, and a myriad of other languages. And we know it's spoken in other languages here in our own congregation. So this morning we're going to focus on the first three stanzas of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is credited as a psalm of David, and he's written it for the director of the choir. So Steve, this is for you, but for the rest of us as well. From the last six verses, the final stanza of Psalm 139, we can tell that the psalmist is writing this in a time of need. And he pins this song as a uh, song of trust, as he contemplates the perfections of God, the attributes of God. So James Montgomery Boyce calls the psalms the older, better, wiser, and practical theology of the very best sort. Well, I believe that Psalm 139 includes theology that stretches the mind and it also warms our hearts. The theology is the very best sort because it's very personal, but also because we would call it applied theology. So join with me. I'm going to read Psalm 139. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. It's a long passage, but see if you can let these uh, words just wash over you this morning as if it's the first time. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. In Psalm 139, King David bears witness to the personal and practical attributes of a God who searches and knows him. And I think sometimes we can become a little bit envious of what appears to be a very personal relationship between the biblical characters and God. And we think, why were they so close? Why can't I feel that closeness? So in a day where God may seem distant to you, I want to draw attention to a personal, to the personal and practical attributes of our great and glorious God who searches and knows you. 
So what are these attributes that David speaks of that are so personal and practical? Well, David praised God for being the all-seeing, all-present, and all-creative God. The psalm is split into four stanzas, six verses each. We've looked at the first three stanzas, and we're going to focus now on that first stanza, verses 1 through 6, as we look at the all-seeing God. The psalmist opens with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is the theme of the psalm. In fact, if you look over at the very end of it, verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. So he repeats that because that's the theme of this psalm. And in that final stanza there, those last few verses we're not going to look at as much this morning, it shows us that the psalmist is in a time of need as he recounts the Lord's attributes. In fact, it seems as if he finds comfort pleading his case before this God who knows all things, who sees all things. God, you know I'm innocent because you've seen, you know, nothing is hidden from you. That's what it comes across as. Because the wicked are kind of making allegations against him, accusations against him. So he pleads his case before God. And I want you to look at the first stanza which he, where he describes God as the one who knows he says he's the one who understands. Verse 3, you scrutinize. He says you are intimately acquainted with. So what is it that God is intimately acquainted with? What does God know? God knows everything. That sounds so simple. But when you start to focus on that, it's overwhelming. The theological term we ascribe to God to describe that he knows everything is omniscient. We say God is omniscient. Author Pink describes God's omniscience in this way. He says, God knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual. All events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him, and nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs never changes, never overlooks anything. Our God is omniscient. He knows all things. So the psalmist writes that God knows when I sit down and when I rise up. Well, I think that alludes to the fact of he knows me when I go into my home and sit down in private because that's what we do. We go sit down and recline there. God sees me there. And when I rise up and walk out, God sees me there. So he knows me in private. He knows me in public. And he says, you understand my thought from afar. Well, you are used to people, many of you, you are used to people knowing your thoughts, sometimes because you air them, but primarily because of social media. Nowadays, people just put their thoughts out there for everybody to know. There once was a period of history where people didn't know everything you thought, you know, or maybe it was just the people right around you, but now we share with the whole world everything we think. Well, God knows everything, the stuff you share, and even the things that you keep hidden. The most intimate thoughts God does. In verse 3 it says, you scrutinize my path. God doesn't just know the geographical data. He doesn't just know the biographical information of how you got from point A to point B. But God analyzes your path. You know what I think that means? He knows your motive. He knows you went from, why you went from here to there. Now you tell other people it's for this reason, but God knows. God knows, he scrutinized, he said, no, you didn't do that, you did it for this reason, because he knows. In fact, the psalmist points out in verse 4 that before I even speak a word, you know what the word is. 
that means that God knows everything that you bite your tongue about, <laughs> you know? The things that you thought about saying but you didn't say. And he knows the words that came out of your mouth, and he even knows what you meant by those words. Because you may say, well, that's not what I meant. But God's like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> God knows. So he knows what we say, he knows what we intend to say, and he knows why we said it. God does not misunderstand, nor is he nor do the masks that we wear deceive him. They may deceive other people, but not God. He sees beyond that. And after these first four verses, the psalmist kind of reflects on these truths. He does this in all four of the stanzas here. And his response in verses 5 and 6 is that this distant, high, and lofty God hems us in. He is our vanguard, and he is our rear guard. He is with us. He writes, you have laid your hand upon me. You have more access to people in this world than ever before. At the click of a button, you can connect with almost anybody. But this world is one of the more, it's one of the more lonely or more alienating periods of history we've ever known. You may feel overlooked in this world. You may feel misunderstood. You may even feel invisible in this room right now. But God sees you. God knows everything there is to know about you. Is that a little unnerving? He knows everything. We like to keep certain things to ourselves, not God. He can see it all. There's a lot of discussion these days about privacy or our right to privacy. I was reading in the news this past week. The news reported a lawyer for Facebook argued in court that the social media sites users have no expectation of privacy what he says there was also news that Amazon has applied for a patent that would allow the echo and the other Alexa enabled devices to capture what you say even before you speak the wake word like when you before you say Alexa it's already listening in other words there is potential these devices record everything you say sometime in the future now I don't know about you but I already feel like I'm being watched I'm thinking how do they know Rachel and I have a conversation at home and we'll talk about something we want to do or something we need to buy. And then all of a sudden I'll start searching, you know, just scrolling through Facebook. And an ad pops up for it. Now, it knows, Rachel. It already knows. And I don't know how it knows. But it knows. Well, we live in a society that traditionally respected privacy. In fact, the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees our right to privacy. An all-knowing God is immensely threatening to us if your goal is to remain hidden from the Lord. But the psalmist found the all-seeing God to be a comfort, even a refuge. So if God sees you, then there's no need to try and deceive or hide from God. He's already seen. He already knows. So this morning, if you walk in here and you feel distant from God and you're not in a relationship with him, I want to encourage you, to move beyond the fear that God might find out. That God will know what you bring to the table. God does know you, and I want to assure you, he's not repelled by you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Some of you come in here, walk in a relationship with God, but you feel unnoticed in this world. You feel perhaps all alone. God sees you. The fascinating thing is you don't have to do anything to get his attention. Whether you want it or not, you've got God's attention. You don't have to perform for him. If you are a believer, then you can be assured his hand is upon you. 
He sees you. He knows the pain you're going through. He knows the grief you bear. He knows the temptations you struggle with. He knows the fears you have about the future. He knows the concerns you have in this moment because he sees you. And he's not walking away from you. We've seen the all-seeing God. We have the all-seeing God as a refuge. We also have the all-seeing God as present with us. So the next stanza of the psalm, verses 7 through 12, ascribe praise to God for his omnipresent nature. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? David, in his need, turns to God, and he's there. Because he's calling out to God, you hear me, and now he says, and you're there. In fact, I think it's clear that God knows and God sees precisely because of the fact that God is there. God sees because he's there. He's the all-present God. Now, some run to God, but there are some who run from him. In fact, the end of verse 7 says, and where can I flee from your presence? Derek Kidner writes, the impulse to flee from God's face is as old as the fall. Adam and Eve in their sin tried to hide from God. So from the very beginning, they tried to cover themselves up and hide. But we cannot escape God's presence. The psalmist says, even if I go to the highest place, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go to the lowest points, making my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. God is everywhere. If I go to the furthest side east, if I go as far east as I can, that's what it means to ride on the wings of the dawn. Because the dawn is in the east. So if I can get all the way over there, or if I go to the most remote parts of the sea, that would be west from Israel. So I can go as far as I want to. I cannot escape you. You are already there. In fact, I think that's what he means whenever he writes here. Even there your hand will lead me. We don't have to wait for him to arrive. We don't have to hope he'll show up because he's already there. Daniel Estes writes, though the Lord may be silent and humans cannot see him, he is never absent or unaware of where they are and what they need. He says, even there, your right hand will lay hold of me. So the psalmist recognizes that even at the most remote location, when he does not see the way ahead, and maybe whenever he is weak, the Lord will be there for him. He will lead him. He will reach out his hand to support him and strengthen him. That's what the psalmist says. So just like in the first stanza, David responds in these last two verses, verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Darkness does not have the power to keep us hidden from the Lord. Nightfall has always been the most dangerous time of the day, the, most, the scariest part, because we feel so veiled by the dark. But not with God. Perhaps it's natural to want to escape an all-seeing God or to feel so far away from God that we think there's no hope. But the psalmist is clear, God's always there. God is always present. About a week and a half ago, I got to go to the McIntyre Joint National Guard Base. I hope I got that right. And it was a wonderful experience. We did all kinds of things. But one of the things we did is we went into the classroom. And uh, one of the guardsmen uh, said to us that uh, as a member of the armed forces, they would much rather do battle or fight in nightfall, in the cover of dark. Because nobody is a match for the U.S. Armed Forces after night. And then he cut off the lights, and I remember the guy was next to me, like 12 inches away, and he was handing me these night vision goggles. 
I couldn't even see his arm. I couldn't see, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And then all of a sudden, I took those goggles, and I put them up to my eyes, and it was as if the night is as bright as the day. That's what it was like. It was amazing. It was fascinating. The darkness is light with this technology. But with God, that's all the time. Kidner writes, God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, but he is operative there. There is a distinction between an all-seeing God and an all-present God. God not only sees us in the darkness, he is with us there. He comes into our darkness with us. You hear the reality of that? That's what Jesus did when he came into this world. He entered the darkness with us. Some people deliberately walk into the cover of darkness, just like the prodigal did. With the prodigal son setting off for wild living in the far country, willfully choosing to walk there. Willfully choosing to indulge in sin. But you are never too far gone for our loving Father. Your sin is never beyond his forgiveness, never outside of his reach. In fact, James 4.8 is a great reminder for us this morning. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So all it takes is reaching out your hand. And he's there. Some of you come in here today and you think that God only loves those who are willing to show their face in the light. But the scripture says even the darkness is not dark to him. Some find the darkness through circumstances that lead them to guilt or depression or grief. Maybe that's you this morning. And you feel all alone from God, covered by darkness, separate from him in the pain of the circumstances of your life. verse that I love. I read it often, Hebrews 13, 5, and the end of it says this, says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You know, when I teach kids at the Good News Club, or when I lead a child to salvation, almost always I share with them this verse. And then I tell them to hold up their hand just like this. So I'm going to ask you all to do this. You hold up your hand, put that thumb back at your chest, and I tell them to say, God will never leave me. So I want you to say that with me. You'll feel weird, but we're all doing it together, okay? So here we go, with that thumb pointing back at you, say, God will never leave me. And then I tell him, I say, drop me and put your own name there. So let's do that. You drop the me and you put your own name. Here we go, all of us together. God will never leave Wes. That's an amazing truth for you to know. If you've received Jesus into your life, God will never leave you. Can I just offer a word here now for the importance of the small group, of the Sunday school class? Your class should exist with the purpose to make sure that everybody feels like they belong and are cared for. So if you're not in a class, that's where that, the fellowship, the ministry that takes place in that building block of the church, of the Sunday school, is so critical to your spiritual well-being. And some of you are a part of a class and you say, you know, we're struggling in that area. You better get it right. Because people need to come in there and feel cared for and know they can sense God is with me because of the arms around me within the family of God. The psalmist is comforted by God's presence, not disturbed by it. So we have a God who sees all things because he is all present. Not only that, God is the maker of all things. He is the one who is all creative. So it's here that God speaks to being present and seeing in the most hidden part of life, the womb. The psalmist writes in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I want you to just look at this passage here in these verses, 13 through uh, probably 16 here. It says, 
You formed, you wove. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It says when I was made in secret, it says I was skillfully wrought. Verse 16, the days of my life were written and ordained. That means that God is all powerful and God is all creative. The word we use for that is omnipotence. Baker defines omnipotence as God's unlimited authority to, br authority to bring into existence or cause to happen whatsoever he wills. God can do anything. So as God is the all-creative God, he has endowed all human life with dignity. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year where we get to celebrate with our special education adults and to remember, to recognize them that all life has value and that anybody can praise Jesus. So it's such a great thing for us to not just watch them but to think that in our hearts. Anybody can praise Jesus. Now I know that all of you are aware that we live in a society right now where the value of life is being debated. And we see this played out particularly in the issue of abortion or a woman's right to choose abortion. Well, I think this issue deals right with this verse of Scripture. What is that thing growing in the womb? The psalmist says, it was me. There in my mother's womb, God wove me together. He formed me in my mother's womb. So I would like to just speak to this issue from a biblical perspective for just a moment. The value of human life is debated in our culture. Well, some argue that the fetus in the womb does not have a claim to dignity or value or humanity because it does not... Um, because it is too small or because it is not fully developed into something that maybe could be called human life yet or perhaps because it doesn't share the air that we breathe or because it's too dependent on its mother to be viable and be called human life well I contend that all human life have value no matter their size no matter their level of development no matter the environment they are in or no matter the degree of dependency that they have. All life is valuable. And and I would say that verse 16 here makes it clear that God views the embryo in all of its potential as a person. Even writing in his book of foreknowledge all the days that are ordained for him. Believe and believe will occur. More than ever before, I believe we as Christians need to articulate what we say and believe. And I believe that God is the author of life. That means some of you walk in here, you feel like a mistake or you feel like you were unplanned. But God creates life, so God created you. He formed you together just like you are. You may not feel comfortable in your own skin. You may think this isn't the way I'm supposed to be. But God knit you together in your mother's womb. If you're a male, he made you a man. If you're female, he made you a woman. That was God's plan. So God's the author of life, and God sees value in all human life. You may think that I'm just here to exist, or maybe that you have too many limitations, but your life has value. It's important, and God has a plan for your life. You may think, Wes, you don't know what you're talking about, but I know this. God assures us from his word that he has a plan for your life. The days for your life have already been written down. So I would encourage you to live your life according to these beliefs, that God made you, that God believes your life is valuable, so much so he'd send his son Jesus for you, and that he has a plan for your life. So our God is all-seeing, he's all-present, and he's all-creative. 
and they demand our worship. So the psalm has been forged in the mind, but expressed with the heart here. And the psalmist does not see God simply as omniscient, as having all knowledge, but he sees that God as knowing everything about him. God knows everything about you. He doesn't simply see the inexplicable way at which God is present everywhere at all times. He's overwhelmed by the fact that he cannot escape God. God is with me. He does not merely stand in awe of God's creation and say, look at this landscape or look at the night sky. He says, God made me. God made you. So God knows me, he's with me, and he's made me. So what do we do with this? Well, I would say that Psalm 139 should, first of all, humble us. Sometimes we make ourselves bigger, think we are bigger than we really are, but we are reminded that God is the one who's big, and we are dependent upon him. We owe our entire being to him. The psalm should comfort us. I mentioned that some would uh, find these attributes unnerving, but how comforting to know that God sees me right now. God knows me. He's numbered the hairs of my head. He's numbered the hairs of your head, and depending on your age, he's either counting them as they leave or come in. That's what he does. Finally, Psalm 139 should encourage us to live for God. Because we think that other things are going to last forever. They will not. Only loving God, loving others, and making disciples will matter into eternity. So live for God. This third stanza of the psalm concludes with, when I am awake, I'm still with you. That's vague enough for us to imagine is that whenever we go to sleep or maybe when we sleep in death. Well, either one is true if you're in Christ. For the Christian, if you fall asleep in death, you wake up in eternity with God. And so today, some of you may not have a relationship with the Lord. And you may have a fear of death. Well, the scripture says that he knows us. He sees us, so he recognizes our need. And our need is forgiveness, so he's given us Jesus. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. And his resurrection means I will be resurrected into eternal life. And all you have to do is receive him and believe on his name. So maybe you want to make that decision today. Well, I would encourage you to do that. This morning we're not gathered to worship a God who's oblivious to us, but one who knows us. Our Father in God, we thank you so much that we can gather here together. And Father, know that you, we know that you don't just see us and know us and made us, but God, you also lead us even into the eternal way as this, as this psalm concludes. So, Father, I pray for each person here as they consider eternity, even in this moment, Lord, that they might respond in a way that would honor you, but also in the way that you're working in their hearts. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come to a time of invitation, maybe there's a decision you need to make. Perhaps it's putting your life into Christ's hands. Perhaps it's coming to join our church. Maybe it's to follow in believers' baptism, like we saw displayed this morning. I would encourage you, if God's speaking to your heart, that you'd respond. So you stand. As our choir sings, you respond.